Welcome to the Ark Church Podcast. On here, you'll find all of our Sunday and Wednesday messages, as well as classes and special services. If you would like more information about the Ark Church, visit us at thearkchurch.com or download our app available to all app stores. Our heart for you is that you would live for God, grow stronger, and make a difference. Enjoy. I like to start because if you don't know me, my name is Dwayne, and I've worked here at the church now for about 11 and a half years. And the reason you don't see a lot of me is because for that 11 and a half years, I've been back with your kids and grandkids. And I have a lot of fun with them. They're awesome. And uh, so I'm back there a lot. So you don't get to see me as much up here. So when I'm out here, I feel like it's kind of helpful for me to let you know a little bit more about myself. So I'll start with a fact that you might not be aware. Now, pastors have hobbies, different ones. My dad, big time golfer, loves to play golf. Uh, very good at it. I didn't pick up that hobby. So my hobby is a little bit more unusual that I picked up on. For several years, I studied Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's the martial art that's at the heart of the UFC, the ultimate fighting championship, cage fighting. That's what I studied. Now, I know that may not seem like your normal, everyday, pastoral um, hobby, but I enjoyed it. You know, so basically, if you don't know what it is, and, and there may be some of you guys that have never seen it, but basically... It's this martial art where you use your, your weight, your leverage, your body position to be able to make someone, and what we called it in jiu-jitsu, we said tap out. Basically, that means submit. And so often the really cool part is you could learn to do it from what seemed like a weaker position, which is like on the ground, like normally where people are getting beat up, you're actually the one inflicting the damage. So I actually can make people go to sleep with my chokes and my preaching. I'm a dual threat. You know? I just, what can I say? Some people have all the gifts. So, so one of the things that I love about the UFC, I've, I've always been a fan for, for years, but one of the things I love about it is, um, unlike a lot of sports, you know, you watch a, a football game, it gets blown out. There's nothing, you know, you can do about it. But, but a, a fighter always has a chance in the UFC. In fact, there is this local guy, he, but he fights in the UFC, but he's from Houston. His name was Derek Lewis. He was fighting this big Russian guy and absolutely got pummeled for three rounds. I mean, it looked like he was out. I just got beat all throughout the cage. And then with 20 seconds left, he knocked the Russian guy out and won the fight. He didn't, he didn't quit. He stayed in the fight. Even though he was getting beat, he stayed in it. And so when you're watching fighters, you can tell sometimes. Now, you can tell the guys who still have some fight in them even when they're losing. And you can tell the fighters who kind of give up. There's some signs. And so a lot of times fighters who have given up, they'll kind of drop their hands. So normally you want to keep your hands up to protect yourself. And they'll kind of walk around more like this. Or instead of bouncing on their feet, they'll kind of just shuffle, almost flat-footed. And then... In the UFC, you can still fight on the ground. And so when they get on the ground, instead of fighting back, they'll just cover up. And then you know they've mentally, they've given up. They're, they're done. Now, I realize that most of you have not been in a literal steel cage any time in the last few weeks. But maybe mentally, you felt like you've been in a steel cage fight. One that you're not quite sure how well you're surviving. And the truth is, if you're that way, you're not alone. In fact, I was looking up some statistics, and here's, here's what they said. They said worldwide, one in, one in four people have been diagnosed with some kind of neurological or, or mental disorder. 
It said 1.9 million children in the U.S. Were, have been diagnosed with depression. They said, uh, I was reading a statistic that said that suicides outpace homicides two to one. Yeah. And that 48% of adults in America had said that they felt like their stress level had increased in the last five years. But get this, that question was asked before COVID and before gas cost $18 a gallon. So can you imagine what the numbers would be like now? I think the numbers would be a lot higher on that. Stress really takes a toll on people. I mean, have you ever looked at the pictures of the presidents when they are first in office and then when they leave office? It's eight years. It looks like they've aged 20 years. And it doesn't matter who it is. They're all that way. It's crazy. Um, And the thing about the problems that happen in our mind is, the challenges in our mind, is that you just can't get away from it. It's with you at work. It's with you at home. You can't, like, pack it away at the desk and go home and just enjoy the day. It follows you. I mean, it follows you everywhere. It follows you home, work. It follows you right now while I'm speaking. It'll follow you while you're leaving, riding home. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And it, what happens is, is those challenges, they just have a way of wearing you down. You feel like that fighter that's on the mat just getting pummeled. And you just are hoping somehow you can survive. And the way I know that is because it's my story. Now, like I said, I like to tell you guys a little bit about myself. When I was um, younger, I began to notice some peculiarities that I had. I had no idea what they were. I just noticed like some of my earliest memories, like six, seven years old maybe. I remember I, uh, one thing, I could not stand for anything to be on the floor between me and the television. It would just give me so much anxiety if it was there. So I would push everything under the couch. It drove my parents crazy. But I just, anything that was on the floor just sent me into this almost panic. My mom, we had this TV cabinet. I remember this one morning. I think it was probably like eight or something. I remember we had this TV cabinet and my mom had those Whatever 1980s moms had for decor, she had that on the TV cabinet. And uh, you guys know what I'm talking about without me having to describe it. And, and we had a cabinet so it would open and close. And, and for some reason, this, the decor would just give me so much anxiety that I remember one day I could not get the doors to, to stay open where it would cover that. And I, and I literally, as an as a, like eight-year-old, I'm having a nervous breakdown until finally my parents just tied it. Because I was having so many trouble. And then as I got older, in high school, I would, I would have this anxiety. So I would, I would go to my locker and turn the knob, you know, lock it, traditional padlock. And I would leave and I would I'd feel this anxiety. Like maybe, maybe it's not locked. I would go back. I would do it again. I almost was late to class multiple times because I would go back and forth because I was just so worried. And I could not shake that feeling. And... Uh, I, everywhere I went, it didn't matter if it was school, it was church, it was home, everywhere I was, I was just feeling this. And what happened was it just kept staying there. It was there through college, it was there as I got married, it was there as I started a ministry, it just followed me everywhere I went. It really, it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I actually went to a psychologist. I was actually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I know a lot of people say I'm OCD. I don't like stuff on my desk. It's a little different than that. It was actually the real thing. And I was, uh, I remember when I got that diagnosis, I, it was, honestly, 
if I'm being 100% truthful, I found myself feeling a little bit relieved because I thought of myself as, as a pretty odd person and I was scared of that. I didn't know how to deal with it. So to have something to put a name to it helped me feel a little bit of sense of relief. Okay, I, have, I, have, I understand a little bit of what I'm dealing with now. But the problem I had was is that that anxiety, it didn't go away just because I knew what it was. It stayed with me. And the other problem was is I got really comfortable with that diagnosis to where if I felt the anxiety, I could just kind of say, well, that's my disorder. So I just got to deal with it. That's just how life is going to be. And I sort of just stayed in survival mode. And I remember my wife telling me a few years after the diagnosis, she said to me one day, she said, I can't sit here with you in this anymore. Now, she wasn't threatening to leave me or anything like that. And she wasn't being uncaring or unkind or dismissive. She understood what I was going through. But she said, I can't sit here with you. And what she was doing at that moment was one of the most loving things she could do is she was pleading with me to fight back and to do something about it, to not just sit there and take it. And that was really a pivotal moment for me. Because from that point forward, I began to really ask God what I could do to move past this, to find some hope, to find some healing, to find some help. And God really began to work miraculously in my life. Things began to change. I mean, honestly, where I stand now is just so much further ahead than where I was back then. And all of a sudden, God gave me hope for the future that I didn't have to always lose, that I didn't have to be in survival mode with my mind. And as I look back, I kind of think to myself, why did I stay in that mentality? Why did I sit there in that? Why did I get comfortable in the problem. I mean, if I'm being honest, maybe, and I don't know what you guys deal with, but maybe you're asking yourself a similar question. Why do I stay in fill in the blank problem? What is it about changing my mindset that just seems a little too scary? What is it about tackling the problem that just seems too overwhelming? What is it about this, whatever it is, stress, anxiety, trauma, diagnosis, whatever. What is it about that that just seems too deep and too strong to fight back against? In some ways, sometimes we, we trick ourselves into believing that the pain of changing is somehow going to be worse than the pain we're experiencing right now. But what if, and that's the question I have for you tonight, to ask yourself as I'm speaking, is what if God has a plan to help you get back into the fight and win the battle that goes on in your mind? What if tonight could be the night where you begin to live the life that God designed you to live instead of the life that you've been living and you know it's not what you, it's best for you. It's that what if question. And see, here's the thing. God actually, I think, has a lot to say about it. In fact, I want to do that by looking first at a guy named Paul. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times when we approach the Bible, we take these biblical characters and we put them on this pedestal. So we kind of like think, well, 
they're up there, I'm down here, they, they, they did everything right, I'm doing everything wrong. And you kind of have this faulty view of things. But in reality, they had challenges too. In fact, Paul, interestingly enough, faced some really dark moments. If you go to the letter he wrote to the Corinthians, the second one, 2 Corinthians, there's actually a list that he gives in that book where he talks about all the things that he's, he's faced over his ministry time. I mean, we're talking about multiple prison stints, robberies, being beaten, uh, I mean, being cold and basically almost homeless kind of thing. He went through everything you could imagine. And a lot of those events, the reason we, we miss some of those things is because a lot of those events aren't actually recorded in the Bible. We get a few of them, but not all of them. When you read the list, you realize there's a lot more going on than what we hear about in the book of Acts. And Paul actually gives us a little bit of insight into how he was feeling when he was going through some of these challenges. If you look at 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 8 through 9, this is what Paul writes. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. One of the commentators that I really like to read a lot, N.T. Wright, this is how he described this passage. He said, in fact, his description sounds much like what we call a nervous breakdown. The load had become too heavy. All his natural human resources of energy and strength were worn down to nothing. It's bad enough to hear a magistrate declare the year's sentence to death. It's far worse when a voice deep inside yourself tells you you might as well give up and die. And that is the point Paul had reached, the point where the night had become totally dark and all hope of dawn had disappeared. That's why I think the Bible is so helpful. Because I think it's really, really honest. The Bible doesn't paint life with a rose-colored glasses. It doesn't hide things from us. It doesn't obscure difficult situations. It tells us the truth about real people facing real problems. And Paul was at this moment in his life. We're not 100% sure which particular thing he was writing about. It's very likely he was writing about being in prison, maybe in Ephesus. And whatever it was in that moment, he felt like he was about to give up. The, the weight of life was crushing him. And if you've ever felt that really deep anxiety or stress, depression, it does feel like a weight. It's like a boulder that just kind of is on your back, just pushing you down to the, to the ground. But what I really like about Paul is that that wasn't where he stopped. And that's the really important thing. He was honest about where he was at, but he was also honest about where he was going. And look what he says in verse 9. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, God's overwhelming power overcame Paul's overwhelming despair. Paul wrote this in a different letter. In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul wrote this. He said, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. See, the answer to your problem, the answer to my problem, the answer to my disorder, the answer to whatever you're going through right now is Jesus. Now, I'm never going to diminish anyone's challenges. I have no idea what you've experienced. You don't know what I've experienced. I would never diminish what you've gone through. But I'm here to tell you 
that your challenges, your problems, your situations do not define who you are and where you're going in life. You see, the book of Hebrews actually describes Jesus. It tells, says, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, which means that Jesus is the one who gets to tell us who we are and where we're going. And so what I'm challenging you tonight is to listen to what Jesus has to say to you about where you're going and about who you are. Because I believe Jesus can bring healing, not just physically, but I believe, as I've seen in my own life, that Jesus can bring healing to our mind and to our emotions. It is not confined to cancer and diabetes and heart disease. It is not confined to that. If he can heal our body, he can heal our mind. And here's, I think, God's plan for victory. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to put it on the screen. It's 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. And this is Paul writing later in that same letter. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets it up, self up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, what I love here is that Paul's using military language. See, if you, if you read it, it sounds like a battle plan to me. And I like that imagery because you know what? Changing your mindset is a battle. And Paul, in this verse, he's encouraging us to fight back. He's like the coach outside the cage when the guy's getting beaten. He's like, fight back. Get up. Punch. That's what Paul's doing for us. You see... I think sometimes people think because the Bible tells us to be meek and gentle, which we should be, that maybe we're just supposed to take whatever life throws at us. I'm not saying we shouldn't be. We should be meek and gentle with other people. We should be full of grace and forgiveness. But guess what? When the enemy comes knocking at your door, you are not supposed to be meek and gentle with him. You're supposed to whip him. You're supposed to beat him. You're supposed to defeat him. You see... We are not doing it by our power, though. We're doing it by the divine power that's in us, by the power of Jesus. But it's our choice. You see, that's the thing. It's our choice. We've been given the power, but we have to choose if we're going to get up and fight. So if you want to beat these things like depression, like anxiety, like diagnosis, this high stress, if you want to beat those things, you've got to be ready for battle. And that's because the stakes aren't, they couldn't be higher. You know why? Because you have value. Because you mean something. You mean something to God. And you have the ability to make a difference in our world because God created you to do that. It says in Ephesians, we were created to do good works. You have been created to do things. You have value. That's why the stakes are so high. Because whenever we stay bound up in these things, we're missing out on the value that God's put inside of us. And we're robbing the world of the opportunity to receive everything that God's put in you. You're withholding it whenever we don't fight back. And it's there inside of you because I know from God's word he put it there inside of you. But here's the problem. We have an enemy who likes to really posture up against us to make us think we can't do it. In fact, it kind of reminds me of a story Matt uh, Clayton was telling us. He, you know, he spent several years in Africa sometime over there as a missionary. He was telling us the other day in prayer about what they were instructed to do in case a lion attacked. I mean, talk about, well, we just worry about traffic here. 
need to worry about a lion going to church. <laughs> I'll take the feeder traffic. <laughs> so this is interesting. And I looked it up to see what the expert said. This is very interesting. He said that our natural reaction when a lion's charging is, is to do what? It's to run. Yeah. That's the first mistake. If you run, you're dinner. You can't run. In fact, what you have to do is you have to stand your ground. And you have to make a lot of noise. You have to clap. You have to make yourself, put your arms up in the air, make yourself look bigger. And they said most of the time, the majority of the time, when that happens, the lion will break the charge and go away. You know, in the Bible, in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. I think it's time we stood up to that lion. You know, Peter uses the word sober-minded there. And basically, this is kind of the idea of that word. It's basically telling you not to dip into irrational thinking, which is something I've struggled with. And if you've had anxiety, you've had other issues, you you've know a little bit of what this is like. Have you ever maybe even just been at work and you're sitting there and you're having a meeting and your boss makes a face? You don't know what it means. But all of a sudden, five minutes later, you've had the conversation planned out in your mind of what you're going to say to him or her when she fires you later that day. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've had more fake conversations than real conversations with people. Am I the only one? Okay, I'm not the only one, right? Okay. You know, I'm, I'm revealing a lot about myself, so I need a little bit of, like, people to say, yes, that's me too. Finally, okay. But have any of those conversations actually helped you? Because I'm going to just say probably not, because those conversations have not really been beneficial to me. They're usually built on quite irrational thoughts, because you know why Satan loves irrational thoughts? Because they deceive us. In fact... Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, in the original language, when he used the word arguments it, in, in the Greek, it carries the idea of deceptive reasoning. So Satan loves to deceive. And if we don't recognize that the thoughts we're having are deceptive, then they're going to wreak havoc in our life. They're going to cause some major damage. In fact, there's a book. I love C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a really interesting book. It's about, it's a fictional tale of two demons conversing in letters. And it really gives us a great insight in how to fight the enemy. He was really brilliant when he did that. But he wrote in the screw tape letters as the demon screw tape. This is what he wrote. We want him to be in the max, and they're talking about the person that they're trying to hurt, trying to, to detour from following Christ. They said, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. And, of course, he was the demon, so for him the enemy was God. See, Satan wants to keep us balled up with problems with anxieties, with these deceptive thoughts. In fact, that's kind of what anxiety is like. Have you ever heard someone say something like, I'm, I'm all, I feel all knotted up because they're, they're stressed out. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm knotted up with joy? We don't really use that word. <laughs> or like, wow, this joy is just strangling me like a boa constrictor. It's just a, yeah, that's not the, how you describe joy, right? You say things more like, I'm doing cartwheels, I'm flying high, I'm, I'm over the moon. Things that evoke the idea of freedom, movement, you know, not 
being kind of constricted. And that's the thing. There's freedom and joy. And so if we're going to win in our lives, we're going to have to trust Jesus to empower us to take down these mental strongholds that Satan's used to keep us pinned in. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, that same passage we read, Paul writes, On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. This word stronghold, it basically meant like a military fortress. You know, like if a country wants to influence another country, they set up a military base nearby. We've done it as a country for a long time. Cats are very good at doing that. I know because I have two of them that I didn't even want. They showed up at our house, and I wanted to ignore them, but I live with people for whom that sad puppy commercial where Sarah McLaughlin sings wrecks them. So I lost the argument, and they fed them, and then they kept showing up, and they became part of the daily routine. And I wanted them to go, but they kept hanging around, and eventually you're like, well, you're here. And then eventually somehow somebody let them into the house, and then they became part of the family. And now we're... The cats and I are having a debate on who's going to outlast who, and we don't really know. (laughs) The more Satan's strongholds occupy your mind, the more influence he has over you. See, he kind of sets up shop. He gets in there, wiggles in, becomes part of the daily routine. Next thing you know, he's uh, camping out in your living room. See, but when you take down those false narratives, you give the opportunity to liberate your mind. Satan likes to hold you hostage, but Jesus wants to set you free. And when he sets you free, he wants you to be free. He don't want you to link, have those, those thoughts, those deceptive arguments, those things just kind of hanging out. I mean, think about it. If, if you knew someone that had been robbed and they invited the robber to stay in a spare bedroom in case that robber needed to rob anything else, they'd be close by. You'd tell them they were crazy. Well, guess what? You got a thief and a liar in your mind that you need to evict. Remember, this is a battle. We're in a war. You don't scoot around a fortification in a war and just leave it so the enemy can keep taking pot shots at everybody. You take it out and you destroy it. I remember that the movie Saving Private Ryan, the, the, the beginning, and they were on the beach, and they were going to take the beach. You know what they had to do? They had to take out the machine gun nest, even though it was difficult, because if it stayed there, they never actually had control of the beach. And until you get rid of Satan's strongholds, you're never going to have control over your mind because he's always going to be influencing it. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it goes on to say again, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that word demolish, it means to completely tear down, to disassemble. Jesus used that same word when he talked about the temple being torn down brick by brick. You've got some things in your mind, some thoughts, some ideas, some ways of seeing the world that need to be torn down brick by brick and taken out. But the good thing is you don't have to do it by yourself. Remember, we have divine power. Remember, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. So we're not taking down a wall with a hammer. We've got like a wrecking ball coming through and knocking that thing down. Jesus has already defeated our enemy. So when we fight back, you know what we're doing? We're just living out the victory he's already won. And guess what? He's powerful enough to do it. And you know how I know he's already won? He said it. he did. He said that he won. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus said, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off 
his possessions and unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. You know who the strong man is in the story? It's not the devil. It's Jesus. He's the one who's tied him up. He's one and we get to live it out. You see, in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says, we, and this is how you get to do it. Okay, this is the really practical part. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So when negative or harmful thoughts begin to come to your mind, what you have to do is you have to take authority over them and make them obey Jesus. You have to make your thoughts come in line and behave. Paul's encouraging us to make our thinking behave by Jesus' rules. And I had to do that this week because I'll tell you, there's nothing like preaching a sermon on your thoughts to make you have crazy thoughts. Because it's kind of like Satan being like, well, let's see if you can actually do what you're saying. So I started having something happened and I started having those what ifs conversations, could be's, maybe's, you know, those kinds of things where you think about 16,000 different alternatives of what could be and none of them are good. That's what I was happening. But I had to stop and ask myself the question, does this thought match what God's word says? It didn't. And then I had to say that thought then no longer has a place in my life. I can't obey that thought. Guess what? That thought has to obey Jesus. And so I took it captive. And I didn't let it wreck my day. And I didn't let it wreck my life. And I didn't let it control how I behaved and how I thought and how I spoke and what I did. So that's the important thing about taking captive. And guess what? I still have issues sometimes. I still have thoughts. I still struggle sometimes with OCD. I still have that. But guess what? I don't struggle like I used to. Because even the diagnosis, I make it obey Jesus. And I tell it when I feel that anxiety and I feel the urge to do something, I say, you know what? No. Because I have power over you. Because you obey Jesus. I don't obey you. Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, put it this way. He said, we assault any narrative that stands in conflict with the knowledge of God. So here's the question. I asked you at the beginning. I'll ask you again. What is stopping you from finding freedom? What's holding you back? What's making you afraid to face those fears and those problems? Are you worried you might not get it right, that you might fail? Well, here's the good news. I I fail. I don't bat a thousand. I make mistakes too. But you know what? That's okay. Because I'm still making progress. So how much more better would your life be if you just, maybe you didn't get it perfectly, but you got it right way more than you got it wrong? How much better would your life be than it is right now? How much different would your your life look if you woke up tomorrow and when you started to go to work and you felt that anxiety rising, you said, nope, that's not God's word, so I'm going to make it obey Jesus. How much different would it be tomorrow? Or what if... When you come home from work and you've been having some stress at home and you say, you know what? I'm not going to let that stress be the boss of me today. How much different would your home life look tomorrow? I'm saying not even five years from now. I'm talking about tomorrow. What would it look like? Because I guarantee it could look a lot different. What if instead of fighting these problems, you found freedom? What would your life look like? Is it possible to win the battle in your mind. See, here's the thing. 
I'm not saying that today you'll be at point A and tomorrow you'll be at point Z. I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. Miracles can happen that way where you could have that. It didn't happen for me. That's why I said it may not happen for you. But here's the good news. Being with God in the middle of a journey is way better than being alone at the starting point. So it doesn't matter if things are perfect tomorrow, but what I can tell you is things can be better. And you can be on the road to health, to healing, and you can see God do some amazing things. And that's really the thing. Are you ready to start the journey? I started the message with that story of the fighter on the mat getting beaten. Three rounds. Looks like he's out, but he wins. And that's the question. Are you going to be that fighter who gets up and knocks out the enemy? Are you going to let him just keep pounding on you? That's really the question you have to answer. See, I promise, because here's the thing I know, because I know it from my own testimony. My testimony is that your future can look a lot brighter than whatever darkness you feel right now. And it's because Jesus has given you the power to make every thought that doesn't align with his word become obedient to him. And that is a game changer. Let's bow our heads. Here's the thing. I've talked about this and, and I want to take a moment to pray for everybody who's struggling. But first things first, if you've heard this and it sounded to you like I want this, there's something you got to know first and foremost. This only comes through having a relationship with Jesus Christ where you follow him as your Lord and believe that he has the authority to do what his word says he can do. And so I want to give you the chance today that if you've never said yes to Jesus, you can do that now. So I just want to ask you, without embarrassing anybody, I want to make you get up, move around, do anything. If, if you would like to say yes to Jesus, to make him the leader of your life so that you can experience this freedom then all you have to do is just simply raise your hand so we can acknowledge you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer just all together. And we're going to ask everybody to join in so we don't single anyone out. And just, if you will, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear God, I know mankind needs a Savior. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe. You're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And God raised you from the dead. Right now, I confess you as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who forgives me and restores me. Thank you, Jesus. My past is forgiven. And I have a relationship with you. I'm a new creation in Christ. Because I've said yes to you. If you'll just keep your head bowed for just a moment, I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray for each person here. I don't know what challenges they're faced this week, this month, or in their lifetime. But I know that no matter what it was, you have the power to set them free. To bring healing to their minds and to help them find victory. And Lord, I pray for each person here that today would be the start of a new fight, 
that they would be ready to battle with the enemy and win because your power is working in them. And I thank you for the healing and for the wholeness that's going to come from this day forward. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message has blessed you. Don't forget to check us out on all the social platforms. We're uploading encouraging content on a regular basis. For more information, go to thearcchurch.com. Have a great week.